Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and today I'm excited to have Idris Alrafia, who's the CEO and founder of Flow48, which provides a source of funding that is non-dilutive, doesn't require collateral or personal guarantees, and does not take months to obtain. Welcome to the show, Iris. Thanks a lot. Uh, good to, uh, thanks for having me, Roy. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, before the call, we, 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 we talked about your journey. It's super interesting. You know, you're born and brought up in, uh, in France uh, and Europe pro basketball player and had a military experience. It's super interesting. You know, how, how did your journey start and, you know, what got you really interested in this crazy world of startups? Wow. Yeah. So it's been, it's been quite a few stories. So I think I've got a, it feels like I've, I've been a little bit like a cat and I've had a few, a few lives a little bit. Um, so my first one is that, yeah, actually I was, uh, I played basketball. It was my passion. And then I turned out I was, I was not too bad, so I, I played professional uh, for uh, Paris a couple of years, and oh. then my dream was to go to the NBA, and then I actually failed three times uh, to get there. Um, anyway, it was quite it was quite an intense experience, right? It's it's this is where a little bit where you understand where uh, hard work is critical for you yeah. to get there, but also at some point talents beats also. We always tend to do the opposite to say, yeah, you know, like a uh, uh, talent is not enough if you don't have hard work. Yeah. Um, uh, but I also think that the opposite is true, right? If you really want to be to the top, I mean, I don't know on percentage standpoints, but on the top 0.1, like talents is just, I remember like when I was playing, there were people that I'm, I'm like, yeah, this guy has more potential than I, than I do. Right. So it's, it, it makes sense that he's playing and I'm not. So anyway, it gets you a little bit grounded, right? Cause you realize that, doesn't matter sometimes how hard you try. And I think that's one of the takeaway from entrepreneurship, you know, as well, you need to work hard. You need to, obviously there is like a lot of, a lot of prerequisites, but you know, it's not a recipe, right? You still need luck. And, you know, I've done a few companies and the difference between success and failure is just so close to each other. I know it sounds like a cliche, but it really is. So, um, Anyway, so yeah, I did that and then I joined the Special Forces for a couple of years. I've been deployed in 14 countries. That was mm -hmm. quite a fun, fun experience. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, when it comes to professional sports, it's always difficult to, uh, to you know, get into, into the top league. Um, uh, and, uh, and you made a very interesting analogy with entrepreneurship. But any... Uh, uh, do you think like you work, you play team sports and then you've been an entrepreneur, any, any similarities for, or uh, for, you know, somebody who does professional sports as well as entrepreneurship? A lot. I think there is a, I mean, so, so for me, at least and the way I see entrepreneurship and I'm not pretending to have like the ultimate truth, but I think there is a level of uh, dedication uh, that is important. The fact to be, you know, how to be structured how to be dedicated in your efforts, making sure like delayed gratifications, all that stuff is present in sport. You don't see the results, you know, like next day, right? You go to the gym, nothing changes. There was actually a, you know, like a Simon Sinek, there was, I was having like a chat about this, you know, like you go to the gym, you know what happened the next day? Nothing. You go to yep. the gym again, you know what happened the next day? Nothing. And it's all about this delayed gratification that you need to have in, in entrepreneurship, right? Because you get knocked out so many times and you still need to believe that for that you can have better days. 
to help you, you know, get up and, and fight again. So I think that's quite a lot. Uh, two is definitely teamwork. You know, like I, I'm part of the team where, you know, like you're, and it was the same in the Special Forces, actually, but I found that uh, that being a CEO of a starter is a little bit like being like the like the head of the team in a Special Force. Uh, okay. And just the analogy goes as, you know, like in the Special Forces, there is like everybody has his own uh, specialty. Yeah. And you as the officer, the only officer that is in the team, you're pretty much good at nothing, right? Except at making decisions and talking to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically the survival is under the others. So you make decisions, life of death decisions, based on the outputs, based on the inputs from other people that know the job, but you still are the one making the calls and you still are the one making decisions for the group. Um, and I think that's a little bit, you know, similar in a sense. Obviously the stakes are not as high, it's not life or death, uh, but in the company you're, you cannot be the best at everything. You need to hire people that are much better than you in the fields that they're that they're in charge of, and you still need to make decisions that that you know um, that are left there for the company. Mm, got it, got it. And, and you know, after uh, after your stint with with military, you you went to do your MBA. You also got into consulting, um, and you know, I've got a lot of. Uh, uh, huge respect for consultants. I was at OYO. I was reporting to law, uh, you know, a lot of BCG McKinsey consultants. But, but uh-huh. do you think a consulting experience uh, is, is? Do you think it's it's quite important when you're trying to build something, or is it something which uh, which is not needed? You should just get your hands dirty and you know build from there. Um, so uh, my personal opinion, right, is that I think so. You're being a startup uh, CEO is not only about building something, right? It's also about building the team and making sure that you have enough money so that you can so you can grow the company, right? right. Uh, and I know like fundraising is not everything, but if a CEO is bad at fundraising, uh, the company, unless they have, you know, a product that is just like so superior, which is probably you know a tiny percentage of startups, um, that you know the company is gonna die. So being able to fundraise is one of the critical things that we ask a CEO because it's the only thing that. He needs to do the best, you know, compared to everyone else in the team. Um, so I truly believe so. So in that sense, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a skill set that you need. And for that, being a consultant before helps you. Mm-hmm. It's not only about you know like uh, deck writing and that kind of stuff, but I think it's it's two things that are critical. It's one being able to be quick on your feet. I think in consulting, um, like one of the things you learn is that you, like you cannot be cornered. You need to be able to find an answer. I, I, I'm not saying that like bullshitting because it's really like it's a bad word, but like really tr- being able to gather some knowledge to provide some kind of insights on the questions that and still add value even if you don't have the answer and i think if you put it positioned that way it's quite it's quite different and i think you learn that in consulting and then two is story writing uh i mean I, I, I truly believe that you know a lot is about story right how you sell the story the way you recruit somebody is how you sell the story the way you get raise money is how you sell the story the way you sell is 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 how how you build the story, right? I, rem- I remember like it was probably one of my best class in doing my MBA. There was like a entrepreneurial selling class, hmm. and uh, it's probably my biggest takeaway. You know, like uh, how how storytelling and story story storytelling and story delivering is 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 uh, is a very critical component. So in that sense, I would say that's important. And then two, I think especially in emerging markets, a lot less true in the US, right? But in emerging markets. Um, you know, like you get access, one of the issues that we have, for example, in the Middle East where I did uh, BCG, right? Like uh, yeah. there is a lack of um, um, knowledge. There, we don't, you don't, there is not tons of information on some of this. Uh, and therefore being able to deep dive 
you know, through consulting for like three months, four months, six months, sometimes one year on a topic, you know, you become a real specialist and you see all the gaps out there. And therefore, you know, gets you to, uh, there's a bit of a aha moment here and you say, wow, there is a huge opportunity here. I really believe in it because I've been working on it for one year and therefore you're more likely. And it's crazy because if you look at Southeast Asia, India, a little India to some extent, and definitely the Middle East, if you look at Karim and so on, if you look at the first wave of companies, they're usually made by consultants. It's yeah. quite interesting. Yeah. There is a high proportion. I think this proportion dies out as the as the maturity of the ecosystems goes uh, goes higher. But yeah, I think it's a pattern that you see in multiple geographies actually. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You you rightly put it across. A lot of consultants did build, you know, the uh, high growth startups in uh, in Asia, and uh, you, you know you you founded Fletcher, uh, which uh, well, which went on to become an end to end logistics solutions. Um, you know how how did that idea came into picture because uh, it yeah. was really big in Mina. Um, how how did you go about you know finding the problem there in uh, in Dubai and Mina? Yeah, so. Um, so basically, it was it was coming from a simple um, like so so before uh, so I did a stint at the e-commerce uh, website right just after uh, BCG, okay. uh, and this is where I realized that there was like something that was there was two things actually one is the fact that if you look at emerging markets you're talking about three billion people pretty much uh, maybe even a bit more uh, and where the growth of e-commerce is actually coming from right slightly you know. Um, uh, uh, at least on a percentage basis, obviously there is a base effect. But anyway, so where the growth is coming from is mostly emerging markets. Emerging markets do not have addresses. That's just a fact, right? You're talking about India, Pakistan to some extent, definitely the Middle East, all of Africa. The address system is not working, right? It's just it's just a description of where you live. And I found that quite interesting that when you buy things online, um, you know, like you're still being asked for an address, even though half of the world population doesn't have one. Right. So even though 80% of transaction uh, comes from mobile in emerging markets, so you have like these weird situations where everybody buys on mobile, on e-commerce, but nobody has an address and you see being asked an address. While when you order an Uber, right, nobody asks for where you live, right? Everybody, like what matters is what you are when you want to use a service. So we tried to match both of this and just like, okay, let me deliver you wherever you are, right? And therefore... We went completely around the concept of address delivering wherever you are. You could be at the beach and receiving a package and kind of stuff, right? So um, we, re- we managed to reduce a return rate and delivery rate uh, in that sense that was quite high, sometimes like double digits in some of these countries, sometimes even more, 20% in Egypt or so, uh, just by solving this. And he became quite big. We had 6,000 employees, we were present in six countries. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a crazy ride for sure, and and the, the ecosystem was not mature at all when we started. Uh, we're I'm not saying the first wave because Souk and you know some of these companies were probably first wave, but definitely second wave with Karim and and, and us. Mm. Interesting, and uh, you know you mentioned about Dubai and Mina. How's the ecosystem there in in, in Middle East now? Uh, looks like you know there's a lot of untapped opportunity, but where do you see the ecosystem going forward? Yeah, yeah, definitely, right? The, uh, it's probably what the ecosystem has changed the most in the past 10 years. Uh, look, like 10 years ago, uh, yeah, I studied Fletcher, yeah, 12, 12 years ago, uh, there was like probably like three, four VCs in the region, right? <laughs> uh, and the rest was like family offices and so on. Uh, you probably have like 10 times as many VCs right now. Yeah. Um, so it completely blossoms, right, as an ecosystem. Um, and uh, this is great, right? Um, we're back in the days, uh, VC spending as a percentage of GDP was one of the, the lowest in the world. Uh, and now it's one of the highest. So we completely leapfrog. 
Uh, the same way we leapfrog, by the way, uh, women, women funded startup, actually, uh, were actually higher than the, than the Silicon Valley as a percentage. So like some of these metrics were completely leapfrogged and that's great. Yeah. So the ecosystem is a lot, a lot different than what it was for sure. Hmm, got it. And um, you, you know, you you went to Globo and then you uh, you started uh, Flow Forty Eight. Um, Correct. Uh, is is are there you know a lack of lending alternatives there in uh, in Middle East? Is that what, what you feel? Huge one. So SMEs uh, look at the UAE for example because we're operating in the UAE. Uh, SMEs typically represents like uh, fifty to fifty five percent of GDP, and only six percent of bank lending. Okay. So imagine that you have like this massive discrepancies. You have basically half of the economy that cannot get funded, even though you know they're the ones that cannot be get financed outside. Um, so so much so that even the like the central bank and EDB are start putting pressures on banks uh, to be able to uh, for them to actually deploy because at the end of the day, this is what banks are should be doing, right? Just injecting money into the economy to make sure that there is like some, you know, like a, a multiplica multiplicator effect, right? Uh, in the economy, right? So, and they're not doing it because they're very uncomfortable, um, you know, assessing the risk from SMEs. So there is not only there is no competitor from an RBF perspective, uh, but there is no substitutes, right? So from an economic standpoint, which means that, you know, the closest product uh, from an RBF is a bank lending and it's not even possible for 90% of the start of not forget startups of SMEs. We're not talking about startups here. We're talking about SMEs. Okay. Uh, so yeah, a huge gap. And that's what we're trying to, we're trying to solve. Mm, okay. And, and are you focusing on e-commerce and SaaS companies or is it uh, the SMEs in general? SMEs in general, as long as they fit the financial criteria that we have in place. So we're industry agnostic, sector agnostic, but we're going to get information from you, but also from multiple, uh, you know, data points. We have like seven data points, seven source data points um, uh, that get us like, you know, different lights of the business. And then we speed up ratios, 17 ratios to be precise, out of which we decide, you know, uh, if it's in or not. Got it. And, uh, and, you know, when it comes to online companies, you know, 50 to 80 percent of ad spends are getting into you know, Facebook and Google ads. Um, you know, that is that is not sustainable. But but why is that that you know whatever money you put in, you're giving back to you know Google uh, and and Facebook. And what what do you think could be the solution going forward? Oh man, yeah, this is a very long question. Um, but but like in in a nutshell, like look, we're um, unlike RBF uh, companies. So obviously, like what we're doing is RBF. Like eighty percent of our revenues come from RBF. Uh, but the RBF. Uh, product is slightly different than what we have in the West, again, because of the lack of substitutes. In the US and in Western Europe, you need to be completely embedded into the marketing suites um, of the SMEs because you're taking quasi-equity risk. Right? You're financing anywhere between 30, 40, sometimes 50% plus of the target company revenues, which is a very RBF model in that sense that it's quasi-equity and therefore because you have complete visibility of the marketing suite and the acquisition suite, therefore you can make bets on companies you want to bet, you, you want to bet on. We're slightly different, right? We're we're halfway between this and just a regular bank that is just like you know SME bank that is just looking at the financial viability of the business and just providing some like loan facility uh, that is like three to six months. So we're a little bit in between, and in that sense, we take a lot less risk. Um, we're financing only a, a small percentage, like less than ten percent of the target company's revenues, and therefore we don't need to be as embedded uh, into the marketing suite. And, and, you know, if uh, if a company, an online company is is building 
uh, in the Middle East and uh, in Dubai, you know, what are the distribution channels should they focus on to build a business if they want to, you know, stay away from from ads or their really limited budget? I mean, uh, for, for, so for me, like, uh, if you look at like most of the businesses that I've built, I'm, I'm a big believer in partnerships and B2B2B partnerships. Right. And I think that's that's where, you know, this is where, especially right now where CAC over LTV is a metric that is being like looked over by investors uh, so much, uh, rightfully so. I think we lost Dandel Star for a while uh, and it's great that we have him back. Uh, so I think B2B2B partnerships needs to be, you know, is, is definitely a way to go. Uh, especially in our field, right? There is quite a few, um, quite a few companies that have actually been um, that have built a partnership, very strong partnerships, or from a deal acquisition perspective, and then have been acquired by them, be it ERP systems, be it payment gateways, um, and therefore, you know, um, yeah, I think it's super critical to not only have that, you know, being able to scale, but also have the right incentive on both sides to make the partnerships work. Mm, quite interesting. And uh, what, what metrics are important for you to process loans to startup founders? You know, how come you're able to process loans within 48 hours? Yeah, so we, we we have a bunch of metrics, but I would say like the financial viability of the business across uh, like in the next like six, six to 12 months is probably, and therefore, you know, quite a lot of ratios uh, after that is is definitely the most important. So in that sense, right, going back to what I was saying, in that sense, it's a lot more like a bank than what we are, like an RBF in that sense. Okay. Um, uh, but then we have like some flavor of, our, of um, you know, what, what happens in the West as mm-hmm. well. But yeah, I would say financial metrics and like, like you know, like uh, liquidity ratios probably are the ones that are the most important. Okay, got it. And and, and you also find, uh, you, you know, businesses which are there on e-commerce marketplaces. Sure. Uh, okay, okay. And, and, sure, sure. We finance them. So actually, if you look at e-commerce, is one of our customer acquisition channels because we are we are we can we we finance both the buyer and or the seller uh, on the marketplace, uh, both on RBF and IBF. Uh, so for us, it's a great customer acquisition, and we finance the platform itself. Oh, okay, okay, interesting. So that's great. Yeah, but but you know, I've heard a lot of founders saying that you know debt financing should come in. Um, much later, especially for for B two C you know SaaS companies or B two C you know consumer companies. So, do you think debt financing can work for uh, you know consumer companies or B two C you know SaaS companies as well? For sure, for sure. Yeah, no, it can work. It's actually, I mean, unlike unlike that, right? Like it's just like it's uh, uh it's not um, so it's, it's I mean, it's not exactly off balance sheets, but you know, like it's just it does not hamper your ability to raise money. Uh, right. It does not uh, hurt your you unit economics, so no, it's a lot. It's a lot lighter, and that's why that's where the success comes from, right? It's it's a lot easier uh, as a process for us, like for for you to be able to have an answer, unlike bank and so on. But it's also like a much better product, and it's also something that can be, you know, if you look at us, for example, we only it's only good and bad time, right? So, for example, if the company is going through a drop and revenues are not here. You know, as where they're supposed to, uh, they were supposed to be. Then we take a lower percentage. Right. The goal is to stay with the company, you know, and being able to uh, to work with them, which a bank doesn't. Right. So in that sense, it's closer to an RBF. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, as long as you have enough metrics uh, and cohort visibility uh, to be um, to be um, uh, to to have some kind of level of security on where the core is gonna going to behave then i think you're you, you you're going to be re- you are ready for the kind of solutions we provide mm, got it and um again i just you, you build a build a big uh 
company which is Fletcher and now you 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 know you building Flow Forty Eight. How do you use compensation to you know create a culture of ownership and accountability, especially in a early stage startup? Ah, interesting. Um, so look, I think the sense of ownership is not purely driven by um, financial structure, right? There is there is quite a lot there is quite a lot that needs to be done at the team level, but also at the CEO level, making sure that everyone is uh, you know in the same team, uh, and making sure that you know everyone um, um, is on the same boat, and you know, and that the success of the company is going to beneficiate themselves. So I think there is quite a lot on the culture side, purely being able to share like shared values and so on, which is you know something that is like super critical. But now to go back to exactly your questions with regards to financial incentives. Um, I think the 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 key is so like for example in almost none of my company have given bonuses except sales. Sales is always needs to be focused. We needs to be bonus driven. Uh, it's like the the short term retribution is really the biggest driver. Yeah. Um, it's just different, you know, different mindsets. Uh, but um, at the you know at the company company wide, yeah, ESOP is 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 critical. Uh, look, if you look at global, we had more than 60%, we had about 6,000 employees, right, back then. And like more than 60%, if I remember correctly, we're having ESOP. Hmm. So we yeah, had quite a massive distribution of ESOP across across the across the board. Hmm. It does work. There is some education that needs to be done, but I think now pretty much everyone is 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 somehow educated on these topics. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and and are you are you remotely based? Because you know you you do shuffle from uh, you know Spain and and Dubai, but uh, how about the rest of the team? Are they are they remote? Yeah, so it's not really remote first exactly. So we have our tech team that is based in um, uh, Moldova, mm-hmm. um, and uh, because it's where our CTO has built his, his team, and we we're you know working with the same people. Uh, and they work not remote, right? So I think that they're working about anywhere between three and four days uh, in the office together uh, on a weekly basis. And then the rest of the team is in Dubai and they're working in the office pretty much around the same. So I think there is some value definitely on having some focused work at home. There is some studies about this. We know this, but there is also, you know, post-COVID, during COVID, we realized that 100% remote is maybe not the right um, solution. Um, so there has to be a solution that is, you know, between between the two. And we believe that, yeah, like two days in the office, uh, three days at home is probably the right mix depending on the functions. But yeah, we found that it's probably the most optimal. Mm. Got it. And, uh, you know, when you're looking to build a company, do you look at as a uh, as building as a team or as a family when you're looking at, you know, uh, building the building the company and a team culture? Yeah, it's a good question. I've heard, like, I, I, like, because for me, I tend to, uh, I tend to think about my founding team. So not really a family because it's tainted, but I really, like, uh, as a close group of friends, for lack of better words. And I come back from mostly from. And I'm not saying I'm correct, and but you, you'll see after, right? But um, I, I tend to think about this as my almost my special forces team, right? Like the guys. That um the guys the guys the girls right like obviously but like the, the people we are together uh, and we're just like you know in the trenches together and you know working hard together uh, and my life depends on you type of things right so yeah. I really some like a very strong tie um, and I know that so I would tend to say family and but then I've also like read quite a lot of literature on the topic saying that that being a family is is 
is is probably not what one the new generation wants necessarily, mm-hmm. and then two the terms is probably misleading, uh, especially when you have to you know downsize and and, and you don't downsize your family right. Yeah. Well, you have to downsize through. You have to go through downsizing in your company. So, look, I would say that the best way for me to handle these two concepts is probably to think it as a very like SWAT team at the beginning, where you're very very tight, and then having a diluted version of this as you go bigger, uh, and going more towards like enterprise or you know um, where the links do not necessarily need to be that tight. Mm-hmm. Got it. And. Uh- and what what do you think is the core difference between trust and safety uh, in a company you know can can you uh, you know would you want to build trust uh, but not safety for for your team uh, okay so how do you think that they that they go against each other in a way because in a safe environment uh so trust promotes a safe environment no for you to be able to come up with ideas and failing yeah. correct so i see them as going Mostly hand to hand, no, or is there something I'm missing? Yeah, I mean, uh, would you want to? Would you trust them to 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 do the job? But would you also want you also want them to be to feel safe enough in the company so that they can speak and voice their uh, yeah. yeah voice their opinions? Yeah, but again, I think it's it's not a yeah, but I think both goes in hands, right? So probably so yeah, so so I would say like. Yeah, like I'm, I'm definitely not into micromanaging. I think you're, you don't recruit people uh, to tell them what to do. You know, yeah. uh, typical. Uh, like they should, they they should be running their own department as a startup CEO in a way, and just being accountable on results, or making sure. And I'm not here to micromanage them and making sure that they that they get. There's the whole difference between you know I was, um, uh, you know the whole difference. Hobbes, I think Thomas Hobbes said this. You know the difference between uh, obligation of means and obligations of results. Um, and I think at the sea level, uh, I'm not here to listen to like how difficult it is or uh, happy to listen to it, but it's, you have to, you have an obligation of results, right? Yeah. Make it work. We hired you to make it work. So make your own decisions, uh, happy to always be a sounding board to see, you know, to think about trade-offs and how it impacts other departments, but that, that's your decision. You're going to need to make calls, yes. uh, because it's not fair, uh, for anyone else to make trade-offs on your behalf. You're here to yeah. make decisions. So I would say that they go hand in hand. Uh, uh, mostly, I think probably the thing that I'm that I'm that I'm uh, the thing that makes me think, you know, like um, uh, in your question is probably like the like the the opposite. I would say the extreme would be more like the Netflix culture, you know, mm-hmm. where where you know you purely judge on your results, and if you're not a high performer in the top whatever ten percent, then you're gonna be fired. Uh, I think that's obviously so for me I'm 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 quite against it. There is quite a level of safety that you need to have within the company um for you to be able to perform. And mm-hmm. just again, we're not we're hiring human beings and not only machine to produce. Yeah. Uh, and I think we're as CEO, you're responsible for that too. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, you know, a couple of weeks back, we we had the uh, you know Silicon Valley Bank fiasco, but uh, we also uh, you know learned about first Republic Bank. But uh, you know, what what scenario planning should a startup do? Should they look at opening up bank accounts only with the with the bigger banks, or uh, or is it okay to work with you know smaller banks like the Mercury and you know uh, like like a bank like yours? What 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 advice would you give to you know upcoming startups? Yeah, so I mean, diversification is probably something that is like important to make sure that one thing, you know, uh, 
become difficult that you might that you have a fallback plan. Yeah. Uh, that's one. Two in there because obviously your questions you know trigger both a strategic you know an answer a strategic level and then a tactical level. A strategic level, I think it makes sense for you to you know to have like two accounts and so on, uh, and mostly believe in the big banks. But you know big banks do fail. I know like the too big to fail is a big is a bit of a is a bit of a it's a bit of a you know like a, um, a concept and it's true that in the us a bit less in europe uh, definitely not true in emerging markets right so um tactically i would have i would have like multiple bank accounts i think um it's important uh, you you might you might have problems with one bank account you know as well you know like you might receive a payment from one account that has been flagged that's pep and then your company cannot operate yeah. all of a sudden you know like and then for lack of better words, you're screwed for multiple weeks until you open a bank account with another bank. So like there is quite a lot of scenarios, so especially in emerging markets that you need to have a fallback bank on. So yeah, for us, for example, we have multiple bank accounts. Okay, got it. Got it. And um, uh, you know, you, in the last couple of years, you, you've been strong on, on, on Middle East uh, and that region. So what do you think, you know, uh, could be the reason for you know MENA to become a powerhouse in, in tech moving forward, I mean, a lot of investments are happening in Saudi Arabia, but uh, yeah. where do you fee, foresee you know in ten years what can be done in MENA for them to, for it, it to be a like a, a technological you know powerhouse? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a it's something that uh, governments in both the UAE and Saudi Arabia, like rightfully said. Uh, are, uh, is something that is, is super important for them. Actually, if you look at the government of Saudi Arabia, they actually announced the next unicorns, the next 20 unicorns. I don't know if you saw it. It's just like basically like these companies, new governments or governmental entities, you need to work with them because we want them to be unicorns. Even though some of them were fairly early stage, like Series A uh, yeah. type of stage. So it was a great news for them, basically saying, okay, all right, we've been almost, so they can make and break unicorn yeah. for sure. Um, and there is only a few countries that can do this, or at least in, there is only a few countries where it's okay to say this uh, and to make it happen. Um, so, like, look, I think that there is one. There is definitely a lot of things that has happened already. Uh, two, there has always been a lot of capital, right, in this in this part of the world. Uh, and for a long time, um, you know, it was going to you know funds in the West, and and but now you start having funds, uh, uh, you know, here, and therefore betting on their own. Uh, on their own horse. Uh, I don't know if you saw the article saying that more and more funds right now from the US are coming to Saudi Arabia yeah. uh, for, for LP money. And it's definitely the case, right? If you look at, you know, funds like uh, PIF and, you know, these Saudi funds are massive, massive, especially if you look at the profits, right? I think Saudi Aramco made as much profits in the first quarter as uh, all the, like, so Alphabet, uh amazon and apple combined in one yeah. year like something like ridiculous and we yeah. tend to completely over so my point is that there is quite a lot of capital and therefore because because of the the lack of development in some aspects of the economy there is definitely will be unicorns that are coming from the region it's just mathematical mm -hmm. uh because it's not a question of talents you know like most of the most of the top uh, people are educated in you know in europe or in the us top universities and it's been like this for generation now. So, yeah, you're definitely going to have uh, a lot of unicorns coming from the region. I think it's probably where you're going to see as a percentage, right? Maybe, uh, but where you're going to have the most accelerations of unicorns. Mm, super, super interesting. And um, you know, you know, Idris, you've been uh, onto your third startup as a founder. You know, uh, it takes 
a lot of courage to you know keep building but you you build something something spectacular with fletcher what what keeps you going to you know keep building because you know uh, you you are at a stage where uh, you you don't need to keep building you could you know uh, run a fund or something but uh, what keeps you going you know uh, just keep building one or more there is something about so so one is quite personal uh, but I th- so and the other one is more general but like so for me i think that there is i want to i don't know maybe it's how i've been brought up but i always feel like like you need to i need to prove to myself to the world to the people that believe in me that you know that i can do it again that it was not luck that i can do it in a different environment a different industry or different geography and i always feel like um it's always this feeling that it's underachieved hmm. uh that uh you know like that I could have done better in other companies. You're always looking for this perfect home run in a way, probably. Uh, and until you, you have not you have not done it, then you're not happy with yourself. So that's the one that is personal. Second one is probably is, is just fun as well, right? There is something that is something about building building a company, surrounding yourself with like top talents, learning so much, uh, being able to like build something from scratch and it's just it's super interesting. Uh, I always remember like for example at Fetcher when you know like after so when you look at the you know your revenue slides it's just like what happened in the first two years we did nothing or what you know but then anyway like a year four we started like freighting aircraft so I remember like during the peak seasons of like 11-11 pretty much right and Christmas so for like four weeks we we're freighting like 45 Boeing 747. No. just full of packages coming straight from China, going to Saudi Arabia. And then we realized that we we're doing this more than any of the other companies combined. It's just like, so there is, there is something that like the magnitude of what you're building is also very uh, exciting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I think that's, but it's also sort of super daunting. Like for me, like, I think uh, if I, if I look at myself like 10 years ago versus now, I think that now I realize more uh, how much of a, uh, how, how how necessary uh, it is for uh, startup founders to have some distance with their own company and try to have a normal life outside of uh, outside of the outside of work uh, because it's uh, it's taxing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I think I think startups are really fun. That's that's why you know uh, I've had a, had a long journey in startups. But but you're absolutely right about you know having that sort of work and a work-life balance. Um, and I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Um, I would say it's probably, um, so the, I would say there is two. One is the story about storytelling. I forgot, I forgot, the, I forgot, the, I forgot, the, I forgot the, the, the name uh, because it's, uh, it's the one that I read a couple of times just like to understand, um, to, to remind myself, you know, on, on how critical it is. And then two is probably the like the Netflix book actually no rules rules, um, like not because I like it but because I'm it's how clear like you know like it's a, like strategy is defining what you're gonna do but it's even more about what defining what you're not gonna do yeah. right it's more important and I think when I see this this is like okay like for me like this is definitely what I don't want to do I do not, I understand why it can work in some environments but I'm not the CEO for this type of company. Hmm. Uh, nothing wrong, but I realized that this is not me. So like, I think that was probably the ones that I'm like, okay, we had very interesting discussions with the C-suites on, on this book. But yeah, that's probably the one. Got it. We'll put that in the show notes. And you know, if you could go back in time and start building 448, 
Uh, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Mm, probably would have... We spent, I spent a lot of time at the beginning talking to debt providers because obviously to grow this kind of business, you need to have uh, debt and equity. Uh, we had equity and we, we tried to grow very fast by uh, talking to debt providers early on. You cannot talk to debt providers until you have a track record. It's just a waste of time, a waste of energy, and therefore a waste of focus. Uh, you need to wait. We wanted to go a little bit too far, uh, too quick, too fast, too fast, too, too quickly, right? Got it. And uh, uh, what's your favorite online tool example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? I mean, I'm on Zoom all day, yeah. So Zoom. And I love the story too. Uh, uh, so Zoom, like the, the, the founder of Zoom is, a, is an Endeavor entrepreneur. Uh, and he, he said this, I'm, I'm a big Endeavor fan. And, uh, and he said the story about how, how we built this company. And honestly, it's just like one of the best story ever. Uh, so for those who haven't, uh, haven't seen the story, we haven't heard him talk, it's like, it's amazing how much he built that. So yeah, Zoom. Yeah, no, absolutely. Zoom is, Zoom is also one of my favorite products. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, and that is, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Flow48? Yeah, for sure. I mean, happy. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's probably where I'm the most act- I mean, uh, quite quite active there. Uh, so yeah, happy to happy to add, obviously. Got it. We'll put that in the show notes. And that is, thank you so much for taking your time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thanks a lot, Rohit. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.